Welcome. The American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy appreciates your participation in our weekly webinar series, Thursday Night Lights. Tonight's presentation is a recorded interview that ASG President Dr. Klaus Mergener had the opportunity to have with Dr. Florian Kramer, Professor of Microbiology at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Their conversation highlighted observations related to the rise and falls in the volume of COVID cases ASG membership has observed and its impact on healthcare systems and GI practices. A review of the two COVID-19 vaccines, one manufactured by Pfizer, the other by Moderna was discussed. This was followed by an understanding on several of the other vaccines that are emerging in development, some nearing final stages for review and approval for use. Dr. Mergener also discussed with Dr. Kramer variant mutations the one out of UK, South Africa, and Brazil. ASG is very excited to bring this important discussion to everyone tonight, highlighting the current state of COVID, vaccination implementation, and what scientists understand currently on the variant mutations. Please note that this presentation will be posted in webinars folder in GI Leap, ASGE's online learning management platform. You will all have ongoing access to the recording in GI Leap as part of your registration. Now it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Klaus Mergener and Dr. Floris Kramer. Good evening. I want to welcome all of you to this webinar. Um, I am Klaus Mergener. I'm the current president of ASGE. And I'm very pleased to have as my guest tonight, Professor Florian Kramer from Mount Sinai in New York to talk about uh, COVID-19 vaccines. Florian, welcome. Thanks for the invitation. And thank you for joining us. Uh, we in gastroenterology don't often get to talk to uh, COVID uh, vaccine experts and, and get uh, primary experience. And we, we have to rely on sort of secondary reviews and commentaries. So I'm, I'm uh, uh, very pleased to have the opportunity to talk to you tonight. I want to uh, just briefly take a moment and introduce um, Professor Kramer to our audience. Uh, Florian Kramer hails from Vienna, Austria, where he did his uh, uh, initial studies and graduated um, from the University of Natural Resources and Life Sciences. Uh, he then found his way across the Atlantic and uh, landed in New York, where he worked with one of the true uh, greats in uh, virology, uh, Peter Palese. Um, um, eventually, uh, Professor Kramer opened his own lab uh, at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And as of a couple of years ago, he holds an endowed professorship in vaccinology at that institution. Uh, I think it's fair to say he's been one of the lead experts in vaccine development. I know that uh, pre-pandemic, uh, Florian, your lab uh, was one of the lead um, labs in uh, investigating and developing a universal vaccine uh, against influenza. And uh, my understanding is that that research is quite advanced and uh, will, I'm, I'm sure, eventually lead to a major breakthrough. And before we go into uh, COVID-19 vaccine-related questions, uh, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your lab, um, about yourself, and what your group is uh, currently investigating. Well, um, what we are really interested in is 
how antibodies interact with viruses. Um, a lot of the RNA viruses that we study, mainly influenza before, before 2020, um, but also renoviruses, viruses, uh, flaviviruses, uh, they change quite a bit. They, you know, they mutate. And so in a way, the immune system has to keep up with that by basically affinity maturation and also, um, you know, changing antibodies and, and developing uh, new B-cell responses. And so that's actually what, what I'm very interested in. And this gives us insights into how to target conserved epitopes, how to develop new vaccines that might not be affected that much by virus evolution. And that's what I, what I do for influenza. Um, and so in the beginning of 2020, when, when we all learned about the sequence of the new virus, uh, we started to work on, on SARS-CoV-2, which in a way is very similar to, to work that we're doing for influenza. Uh, and so it was easy to switch. Um, we didn't switch completely. We still do about 50% of our work on, on influenza, uh, but SARS-CoV-2 is a big part of, of my lab now. And I, I could have probably introduced you with essentially your Twitter summary of yourself, which uh, reads uh, for your interests, viruses, 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 and vaccines. And uh, for, for our audience, uh, if you want to keep up to date on what's going on with COVID-19 and vaccine development, I would highly recommend following uh, Florian Kramer on on Twitter and and add to his some uh, two two hundred thousand or whatever it is by now followers. Uh, very, very informative uh, tutorials uh, very frequently and it really keeps me up to date anyway on what's going on. So thank you for for that service in a way. Um, I I have what I've done is I have uh, a couple of pages. Uh, of essentially member questions uh, that are vaccine related. I've asked colleagues in the run-up to uh, this session today to send me questions and I've compiled a little bit of a list that I want to go through. And I'm reminded uh, of the fact that uh, the COVID pandemic has some advantages because if people could see me, I have my notes spread out around me here that no one can see. Um, so uh, hopefully uh, we, we can uh, make it through some of those questions. And uh, if I may, Florian, I want to start with just sort of a high level overview of where we're at today as we're talking February 9, uh, 2021 in the US um, in regards to our vaccine situation. We have the Pfizer um, uh, vaccine uh, that received emergency use authorization, same with the Moderna uh, vaccine. Uh, those are, I, I believe, still the only two currently in the US. Uh, there's a lot of press in Europe, in the UK, uh, uh, and uh, with the European Union around uh, the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. I'm, I'm curious uh, about an update as to when we might expect that vaccine. Um, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine has re, uh, uh, gotten some press, and I believe there's an FDA meeting set uh, for some time. Um, are those essentially the vaccines that we in the US uh, can think about and expect to eventually see, or uh, are there others, and how soon might we see some of them? 
Um, yes and no. Of course, the RNA vaccines are in wide use right now. If we have a good day, we vaccinate more than 1.5 million people, uh, which is great. And I think the US is doing really well in terms of, of uh, getting people vaccinated. There are countries like the UK and Israel that are a little bit faster, but I think uh, still um, uh, the rollout is pretty good. Um, the next vaccine that can be expected is the, the J&J vaccine, which is an Adeno 26 vector that's only given once, uh, which, you know, is, is an advantage because you don't need to get a booster dose. Uh, we know uh, that against moderate to severe disease, um, this uh, vaccine is, is uh, efficacious. The efficacy is about 72%. We already also know that it works against uh, the uh, B1351 variant, which emerged in South Africa, because part of the J&J trial was actually done in South Africa. Uh, it loses some efficacy, but it's still good. Um, and so that's the next one that we can expect. Um, the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, there are a lot of hiccups with that. Um, there are different studies um, with different dosing, different intervals. Um, and that um, basically produces a lot of data, but uh, also because there are different regimens, relatively wide confidence intervals. And this vaccine was licensed in the UK and also in the European Union. Uh, the uh, license from the EMA, which is the European Me Medicines Agency, the counterpart of the FDA, actually says that it's only 60% uh, uh, efficacious. Um, and the expectation is that US studies need to be finished before um, the FDA would uh, probably consider uh, licensure of, of that vaccine. Um, but there's another vaccine, and we have heard about uh, results, relatively good results from that vaccine recently too, and that's Novavax. Uh, that's a recombinant protein vaccine that's produced in the US. And um, there have been uh, results from trials in the UK, which showed uh, 90 plus percent efficacy for that vaccine. Uh, there's also results from uh, South Africa where a part of that uh, trial, not the phase uh, three, but the phase two B trial took place. We already know that this vaccine works also against the South African, uh, or you should, I shouldn't say South African, but the B1351 variant uh, with reduced efficacy, but still with 60%. And I think after the J&J vaccine, that is probably the vaccine that will enter the market next. Uh, it is also important to say that J&J started two phase three trials, one early one with a one-shot vaccine, and the second one in November, where they give the same vaccine twice, and those results should come out in the next few months as well. And we might end up in a situation where there's two J&J vaccination regimens that, that are licensed in, if uh, the giving the vaccine twice is, is working as well. So there is quite some movement and um, I think we can expect uh, two to three more candidates relatively soon. And that's that's great news. You mentioned Novavax. That's, that's a startup company, right? That um, is essentially producing their first product. Does that have implications in terms of how fast uh, they might be able to ramp up production of the vaccine or we don't know? Well, Moderna is in that sense a startup company too. So Novavax has been around for a long time and they use, they make recombinant protein vaccines that are produced in insect cells, which sounds exotic, but is pretty standard way of making uh, 
vaccines. There's a flu vaccine that's licensed that's made like that. And uh, also a, a human papillomavirus vaccine that's made in a similar way. Um, they have a flu vaccine that uh, where there's also a pending uh, licensure, licensure requests or BLA to the FDA. Uh, so they're not inexperienced. And um, in addition to that, it's a process that can be run by many different companies. So they could expand relatively quickly and they already have contracts in place globally with other producers uh, who could then uh, basically make that vaccine. But of course, you're always concerned with a small company with the first product, because if you scale up things, there's always hiccups. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's good to know. Can we briefly review uh, storage requirements for these uh, different vaccines? My understanding is the J and J one is one that uh, will uh, be we will be able to store at four degrees Celsius. Correct. The J and J, the AstraZeneca, but also the Novavax vaccine can be stored like regular vaccines between two and eight degrees Celsius while uh, the Moderna vaccine needs to be uh, frozen uh, at minus 20 and the Pfizer vaccine needs to be frozen at minus 60 to minus 80 degrees Celsius, which of course is unusual. Not really an issue in the United States, but uh, it, it is a challenge to distribute it. Right, okay, very good. Well, you mentioned efficacy uh, of the vaccines and uh, there's been a bit of confusion around what that means when we throw out these numbers of 60%, 70%. In the case of Pfizer, you know, potentially 95% efficacious. If you wouldn't mind explaining to us briefly what that is referring to, it's not referring to um, the, the fact that 95% uh, means that 95% of those uh, folks receiving the Pfizer vaccine in this example could not get uh, infected with SARS-CoV-2. Is that correct? What does efficacy mean in, in these trials? Yeah, it's indeed confusing because it's depending dependent on the trial, right? Um, for Pfizer, the definition was to have a SARS-CoV-2 infection with at least one symptom. Um, for J and J, it's having a moderate to severe SARS coronavirus two infection. Uh, so the definitions are different, and that makes it a little bit harder. Usually, uh, none of these uh, efficacy um, endpoints actually take into account infection. So um, we know from the Moderna trial, for example, that there were a relatively large number of asymptomatic infections after the first vaccination. Uh, because when people came in for the second shot, they got swapped. Um, but there was a difference between the placebo control group and the vaccinated group. And uh, they calculated an efficacy. The numbers are too small to really, they're not statistically significant. But they calculated an efficacy of about 60% against, um, against infection. And so what I would assume, um, and this is also based on data from uh, non-human primate models, is that the vaccines have an impact on infection as well. It might be much lower than the impact that they have on, on uh, getting sick and uh, getting symptomatic. Um, but I would also uh, think that if you're vaccinated and you get infected, that you have lower virus titers and for a shorter period of time. 
and that uh, will very likely impact on on uh, basically circulation of the virus in the population and it's likely that people who get vaccinated um, are not not as uh, uh, as problematic in terms of transmission of the virus mm -hmm. to others. So there is not too much data around uh, for, for this, for the different vaccines. There are bits and pieces. And of course we have the animal studies, but I would expect that there is a, a good impact on infection and transmission as well. Mm -hmm. But in terms of eventually being able to quantify it, that's gonna take additional studies and, and more time. Yes and no. Uh, so there's data sets and sample sets that have been collected during the phase three studies uh, that could be analyzed. And uh, for example, if you get one of these vaccines, you make antibodies against the spike protein of the virus, the surface glycoprotein. But because the nuclear protein, which is also a target of antibodies when you get infected, is not in the vaccine, you don't make those antibodies. And so it's, it would be possible to now go back and you know, look at the serology of all these 30,000 30, or 40,000 people in the clinical trials and figure out who, how many now have these nuclear protein antibodies, which would be suggestive of an infection, right? Um, so this is work that's being done, but it will take time. Um, but again, there was also already a preprint from Israel, for example, where they looked after one dose um, uh, of the vaccine in, into uh, people who got infected, and then looked at the CT values, which are basically uh, values that you get from, uh, from PCR. And they see that the CT values in people who got infected after getting the vaccine are lower uh, as compared to people who didn't get vaccinated. So you already see effects there. And I think uh, we will see a lot of data in the next weeks and, and months that, uh, that will give us a clearer picture. In interesting. And would, would your expectation be, uh, I know these vaccines use different vectors. Some are, as you pointed out, uh, mRNA vaccines. Some use adenovirus um, vectors, essentially. Um, is, is your expectation that um, that does not, the, the vehicle, the vector used to essentially um, um, get the information into the vaccinated person is, is not primarily uh, responsible for uh, the, the difference in effectiveness or duration of an immune response. It doesn't look like uh there's an influence on, on protection from infection necessarily. I would say the higher your, or the stronger your immune response, the more likely it is that you don't get asymptomatic infections. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, that's kind of the case. Um, of course, there are differences also in terms of the, the antibody responses, the T-cell responses that you get after vaccination. Um, and for example, the Novavax vaccine is known to induce relatively high antibody titers. The RNA vaccines do that as well after the second dose. Um, the viral vectors to some degree, but not very high titers. Uh, but then the viral vectors induce more of a T-cell response. So it's, it's kind of balanced and we have to look um, how that develops. And it's hard to directly compare. Uh, mm -hmm. It's up to academics to do that because uh, the vaccine producers don't like to do that. They do their study, they have their own assays that they use, uh, which are usually good 
assays, but you can't directly compare results. And that makes it hard. We know that the antibody response, uh, when we compare Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, because we are doing these studies now here in, in, in an academic setting, there's not much of a difference, basically no difference at all. But those vaccines are very similar. Um, but again, it's, it's, I think it, uh, this will come out of academic studies that really compare the, the vaccine approaches directly. Got, got it. But uh, it sounds like there's no basic underlying reason to believe that, for example, an inactivated virus vaccine ought to be any better uh, than an mRNA-based or an adenovirus uh, vector-based vaccines. There'll, there'll be differences, but it's not immediately predictable that one is is better than the next. Is that fair? Well, I mean, there is a trend that shows that the efficacy is higher for the RNA vaccines, right? I mean, they clocked in at 94, 95%, which is really, really high. Um, it's the, even for other good vaccines, that's high. Um, and the viral vectors are coming in a little bit lower. Um, but again, there's also this difference between efficacy, and that's what we measure in a phase three trial, which is relatively controlled, and then effectiveness, uh, which is basically what we see once we use the vaccines in the population. And for example, um, a J&J vaccine that's only given once, and people don't have to come back, might overall have a better effectiveness than an RNA vaccine where people might have a a bad experience with reactogenicity initially, and then might not come back for the second dose, right? So one thing is the clinical trial setting, which is controlled. Uh, the other thing is how they are doing in the population. And um, so I think uh, that is something we don't really know yet. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, uh, makes sense. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. I, I saw on your, uh, in, in your Twitter, uh, feed, you have been vaccinated, you had two doses. Uh, I, I uh, got my Pfizer vaccine a few weeks ago, have had both doses and have had virtually no reaction to it. I mean, a little bit of soreness at the injection site, you know, sort of like a, a flu vaccine. Uh, colleagues of mine, they got their second dose, they were out flat for a day or two uh, with all kinds of side effects. Should I be worried that uh, my, my vaccine is not working? Is, is uh, a reaction after the shot predictive of anything? And secondly, how else would I know? Do the uh, standard uh, serologic tests, um, are they of any use in uh, determining whether or not someone uh, developed um, uh, um, uh, a, a response to a vaccine? Yeah, so those are good questions. Uh, I share your experience. I, I got the vaccine twice. I had a sore arm twice, and that was about it. While some of my students uh, who got vaccinated because they worked with the virus um, uh, were out for a day two and had chills and had uh, all kinds of side effects. Transiently, they felt better of the day, but uh, it, it happens. And so um, this has not, not really a, a, big in, a, a big influence on, on protection or the antibody titer. Um, we know that people who don't have uh, severe side effects or who don't have side effects at all still mount a very good response. Uh, there's a lot of factors that come together. Age, probably, uh, how active your innate immune system is, but also your pain tolerance. Some people just shrug these things off 
uh, other people are you know suffering from it quite a bit so i wouldn't worry about uh, about that too much but you know if you want to know it's it's relatively easy uh, there's tons of serology tests out there you can get them right now at almost every doctor's office the only important thing is um serology assays can be based on the spike protein or the rpd which is part of the spike or the nuclear protein and the nuclear protein is not in the vaccine and i have gotten countless emails from people who told me that they had two vaccinations uh, and they uh, now asked for dieter determination and uh, they are negative yeah. and then when you go back and ask those people to look at what test they did, it turns out it was an MD, a nuclear protein-based test. Exactly. I, I saw you reporting your test results uh, on, on Twitter and was positive. How do I find out what, uh, what serology test does what? Uh, there are so many of them. Is that typically uh, being indicated uh, on the uh, test? Yes, it is. So there's uh, several ways of, of, uh, of figuring that out. I mean, if you if you get the test at the doctor's office, you can always ask. They might not, not know all the time, but they usually know what type of test is used, and then you can simply Google it. Uh, the FDA has a list of all uh, authorized tests uh, in the US. Um, it's quite an extensive list, but in all of these uh, documents that they provide with the authorization, it actually specifies what the target is. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's uh, it might be some uh, some work to figure it out, but the the information is available. Is this similar to hepatitis uh, serologies, for example, or other uh, post-vaccination serologies, where the titer itself? Um, is likely to indicate the degree of protection or we just don't know? We're getting there. Um, so one of the issues is, and that's the same as with the vaccine producers and their assays, uh, it's hard to compare these different uh, serology assays. But now the WHO has, um, and that's what they, what they usually do, uh, has produced an international standard. And now all these serology assays are getting switched to uh, international units. And that makes it possible to compare. And at the same time, there are studies running that look at, you know, a correlate of protection. How high does your data need to be in order to be protected? Uh, we already know from uh, the SIREN study in the UK, from another large study in the UK, from studies in the US, including one of our own, uh, that having antibodies uh, gives you a, a very uh, high risk reduction in terms of reinfection, right? Uh, so it turns out that... Uh, having antibodies is very protective. There are reinfections that can happen in, in rare cases, but uh, infection usually provides better protection against infection, not just symptomatic infection, than, uh, than vaccines. And so that data is now there, and uh, I think it's safe to assume that. Uh, we just don't know how much you have to have. Uh, but again, uh, the next few months will probably bring that data. Wonderful. And uh, we're, we're making reference, at least in general terms, to a variety of publications. I want to let our audience know that what I will do after uh, our uh, seminar tonight is to be in touch with Professor Kama and we'll put together a short list of maybe pertinent studies and overview reviews that uh, we think might be of interest to you all. I, I would uh, commend to you uh, if you're interested in vaccine development and all the different uh, activities currently going on 
a, a single author uh, nature review that Professor Kramer authored, uh, published, I believe, in September of last year in Nature, essentially a wonderful overview of uh, how vaccine development uh, happens and uh, the different candidates uh, for the COVID vaccines. And uh, there are a couple of follow-up uh, publications that uh, from uh, Professor Kama that I also want to list. Um, Florian, I want to shift gears just briefly and, and have us talk a little bit about these uh, virus uh, variants, uh, mutants. <laughs> Um, in, in the UK and South Africa and South America, we're hearing about a variety of them. And just your sort of overall take, I, I saw an article in the New York Times yesterday that, you know, it's believed that uh, in this country here in the US, uh, the, uh, I, I believe the uh, UK variant um, is believed to be doubling every 10 days and will soon be uh, potentially the dominant um, uh, type of virus in the U.S. Um, um, just at a at a high level, um, what what should people know about these virus uh, variants in terms of their infectiousness? And uh, we've talked a little bit about the um, the vaccine effectiveness against these uh, mutants, but just remind us uh, one more time, please. Yeah, sure. And maybe I should start with. Uh, with how they might have uh, emerged, right? Uh, they're very unusual because they have many mutations and they exceed the mutation rate that we see for, for coronaviruses or SARS coronavirus too. Uh, so it's a little bit surprising that they showed up and there is a hypothesis that uh, they were actually uh, generated in people who had more persistent infections and maybe a weak immune system. And there was a kind of a constant low, but still a selection pressure. Uh, and that made them uh, evolve and A, better adapt to, to the human body and B, uh, maybe there was also some immune escape in, in, that, in, in those people involved. This is a hypothesis right now, but there are cases in cancer patients, for example, where there's persistent infection and where you see similar mutations show up. And so they were initially detected because they expanded, right? Uh, so the variant B117, which was first detected in the UK, was already detected in early, uh, in early fall at a very low frequency. And then it started to increase in frequency. And if you see that uh, in the population, the assumption is that the virus variant has an advantage over other variants. That's why it expands. And so the B117 variant, which uh, People call the British variant, but uh, as a virologist, it's it's uh, politically incorrect to name a country and the and the virus. Um, that variant uh, started to be dominant in the UK, and uh, it is believed that it's approximately 35% more infectious or more transmissible. That doesn't sound a lot, but of course, you know, if you look at the numbers, large numbers and reproductive numbers, uh, then of course it gets an advantage. Uh, that doesn't mean that these variants or this variant can be stopped by wearing a mask, by washing your hands, by socially distancing. Of course, those things work against uh, viruses that are way more infectious, like measles, for example. Uh, so that, that that's not really an issue, but they spread preferentially. And the same was true for the uh, B1351 uh, variant, which emerged in South Africa, was detected in the same way. And uh, it's also true for the P1 variant, which uh, emerged in Brazil. 
So these variants have a, a number of mutations. Uh, one uh, at position 501, that's in the spike protein in the receptor binding domain, uh, that seems to allow them to be more transmissible. And um, so that's what uh, the British variant, that's the main mutation of the British variant, there is more. Um, but what we know about the, the B117 uh, variant from, from the UK is that, a, yes, it's more infectious. Uh, it doesn't cause more severe disease, even though Boris Johnson at some point mentioned it, but I don't think the data was there to draw that conclusion. Um, and we know by now that the vaccines work relatively well against that variant. So there is not really a, a sharp drop in vaccine efficacy. Uh, the, the vaccines that we're getting vaccinated with should should be fine against that virus. Um, the South African B1351 uh, variant and the Brazilian variant have additional mutations and they're more problematic because uh, they actually influence neutralizing activity. And it has been shown in vitro uh, that zero from people vaccinated with the Moderna, the Pfizer vaccine, for example, have a reduction in neutralizing activity against these variants. It's, mm -hmm. The neutralizing activity is not gone, it's reduced. And the remaining activity is most likely enough to, to protect ourselves. Um, and it has also been shown for the Novavax and the J&J vaccine, as I mentioned, uh, that yes, the efficacy suffers a little bit, but it's certainly not gone. And you have to keep in mind that if the efficacy against mild disease goes down a little, then usually the efficacy against severe disease goes down even less. Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, we need to keep an eye on, this, on these variants, but at least in the US, they are right now not a, a major issue. The issue uh, that uh, South Africa is facing right now is that the, the AstraZeneca vaccine does not seem to work against the variant in terms of um, uh, uh, mild to moderate disease. And there, there's not enough data to conclude that it still works against severe disease. And uh, of course, if you don't have the data, you don't wanna roll it out and vaccinate your population. And then just to find out that it doesn't work at all. That's unlikely, but that's why South Africa uh, decided to, to stop the rollout. Uh, so that's where we stand with these variants. We'll see an expansion of the of the B117 variant in the US. I hope we'll see less of an expansion of the B1351, uh, the South African variant and the Brazilian variant. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, if if uh, if they expand, it's very likely that the vaccines will still give good protection. Um, and if we uh, figure out in the end that the effectiveness in the population is too low, um, vaccines can be uh, changed to reflect that sequence. And, and I was going to ask you about that uh, last point, if I may. Uh, so assume, you know, this is an RNA virus. Um, there's a higher um, rate of, um, of um, uh, of mutations in RNA viruses. There may be certain situations, as you point out, where uh, that might even be accelerated in um, patients with prolonged infections. So, and, and we're barely 12 months into uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're already seeing some of these mutants. So is it mutations? <laughs> is it, um, is it likely that there will be more, I assume? Uh, can we assume that some of these mutations will eventually be such that um, some or most vaccines may not work? 
And, and therefore, uh, my question would be about vaccine development. Uh, you've published on this quite a bit, uh, explaining how short, uh, how, how much vaccine development might be shortened um, to respond to new challenges, new viruses, new mutations. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, please. Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously getting easier right now because for the RNA vaccines, you can basically change the sequence overnight and produce a, a vaccine that now is many new variants, right? Or the, the one of the new variants. Um, that's complicated a little bit about, uh, because of course you wanna have the data that in humans, that new vaccine now does the same that the old vaccine did against the old variant. Uh, so you probably probably need a small clinical trial um, with neutralizing activity, immune responses as readout. I don't think you need a, a phase three trial, but that takes a little bit of time. And the other complication of course is, you don't know if you have the sequence now of the new variant in your vaccine, if that vaccine still protects against the old variants or the old virus, which might still be around, right? So it's getting a little bit complicated there and companies are working out pretty good concepts to get around that. Moderna was uh, proposing or testing to give a third shot, but uh, now with the with the modified uh, vaccine as a third dose, um, Novavax is talking about making a bivalent vaccine. So there's ways to do that. Um, and I think, um, if need be, the FDA will also be relatively lenient because there's already a lot of safety data with the original sequence and the, the platforms, right? Uh, so I think that could be done very quickly. But in general, with these mutations, um, if you would have asked me six months ago, I would have told you uh, I wouldn't worry about the stability of the virus because coronaviruses, in contrast to other RNA viruses, have a proofreading activity and they actually move relatively slowly on an evolutionary uh, uh, trajectory if you look at other human coronaviruses. And if you compare it with influenza, uh, what you typically see with, with flu, when a new pandemic hits, um, there is initially a quicker evolution because the virus still adapts to humans. And then it doesn't move that much for two or three years. And then antigenic drift starts. So in a way, what we see now is, is even faster than influenza, but it might just be that initial adaptation that influenza does as well. And it might, it might not be bona fide antigenic drift. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this develops. It could be that the virus keeps changing, but it could also be that it, it gets stuck and stays where, where it is in its evolutionary trajectory. And I'm still hoping for that. So we'll see. But uh, technologically, I think we have solutions if we need to find them. And it sounds like maybe at some point it could be as simple as having a cocktail of mRNAs um, uh, injected. Uh, can some of the concepts that you have been working on uh, for flu vaccines in terms of a universal vaccine eventually apply to, say, a, a universal Corona SARS-CoV-2 uh, vaccine? Uh, will will we? You know, I, I know that uh, is speculation uh, today, but uh, down down the road, ten years and more down the road, will there be a universal vaccine? Do you think against SARS-CoV-2 uh, covering essentially all variants? Uh, 
Yeah, that's an exciting topic. And uh, a lot of people are thinking along those lines right now. It might be much broader than SARS-CoV-2, right? Uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a beta coronavirus, like two of the human coronaviruses that are circulating, like the old SARS virus, like uh, MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus. And so it would be nice to have a vaccine that protects against all of those. And I think similar approaches that we, compared to what we are using for, for influenza, could work here as well. It's just, you, you can't develop that in a year. You probably, it takes much more time. Not as much time as it took initially for influenza to get us started, just because the technology is better. Um, but still, it's, it's not going to be an overnight development. But that would be ideal because, you know, there might be another coronavirus pandemic at some point, and we want to be prepared for that too, I guess. Well, it's a good thing. It takes a while. That's going to keep you busy for a while, Florian. That's, that's always uh, good. Um, let me ask you, and, and this is getting just slightly away from sort of core vaccine questions, but Christian Drosten, who's a virologist in uh, Germany, who, as you well know, has been a fairly, a fairly prominent voice in that country um, in recent months, is, uh, I believe, one of the co-discoverers of the first SARS-CoV uh, uh, um, virus. Um, he has opined that eventually down the road, he sees SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 infection sort of take its place, you know, almost among the, the other human coronaviruses, you know, once there's sufficient immunity worldwide, there's widespread vaccination, there's widespread herd immunity, whatever you want to call it, that... Um, the, the virus may or may not go away completely, but you know reinfections might essentially um, be somewhat more like a common cold. Is is that a, a scenario that um, seems likely, or can we predict where uh, uh, COVID nineteen will eventually be ten years from now, as a as a as a disease as an infection? No, I mean, I think that's exactly where it's going to go. Um, we will not eradicate this virus. Uh, we haven't even eradicated polio yet, and polio should be easier than uh, a respiratory virus. Uh, so I think, uh, I don't think that that is a realistic, uh, realistic um, option. Um, and I think he's right. Um, I think once people, even if they're protected, if their immunity goes down a little bit, they probably can get reinfected asymptomatically or, or, or mildly symptomatically, um, which might then lead to another boost in immunity. And then you're good for a few years again. Um, and I don't think that the virus will go away necessarily, but the impact will be relatively low. A, because a lot of people will have pre-existing immunity and will be protected from any kind of moderate or severe disease. Um, and uh, B, you know, once a lot of people um, have at least partial immunity, the circulation of the virus is going down. I mean, we're talking about herd immunity, and that's exactly what that is. We, we already assume that with vaccination, uh, the circulation will go down. And once there is 
fewer uh, fewer viruses circulating or if there's little virus circulating, the chance of getting infected is low. And if you have pre-existing immunity, even if you get infected, there's, there's not really consequences, right? And so that will basically um, remove the impact on society that we see right now. But yeah, I don't think it's going away. I think it's going to become the, the fifth human coronavirus. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I want to be mindful uh, of your time. Uh, I have, if I may, one last uh, member question that was submitted um, just yesterday uh, to me and, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, that question relates to folks who've been uh, known to have been infected with COVID-19 and have recovered. Um, should they also be vaccinated? And if so, do they need the same uh, vaccination uh, regimen? And I, I know you, you have uh, actually uh, researched and uh, recently published on this. And I was wondering if you could uh, tell us what your thoughts are. Uh, currently, my understanding is there's no distinction being made in vaccination programs as to how to handle folks who've had COVID-19. Uh, where, where do you think that issue is going? Yeah, you're you're right. Uh, the the recommendation right now is even if you had already COVID nineteen, uh, you're supposed to get two doses of vaccine, um, and it makes sense to still get vaccinated even though you already have antibodies. Because what we see natural infection, the antibody levels are variable, right? Some people have high titers, some people have low titers. Uh, after vaccination, that becomes very uniformly high. Um, so that's what we see when people get vaccinated, everybody has high titers. It's in the top 25 uh, of what you see after natural infection. Now, the question is, should you get vaccinated twice? And that's a different story. Immunologically, um, if you haven't had COVID and you get two doses, you get a prime and a booster dose. Uh, and that's beneficial. That gives you high antibody titers. It drives affinity maturation. It probably is also good for longevity of your, of your immune response. Now, if somebody already had COVID, that person is already primed. And if that person now gets the first vaccination, um, that's the booster dose. And so our question was, if you look now at antibody titers and how robust they are, uh, is that really the case? And we looked at that, and it is the case. People who had COVID and then get their first shot have antibody responses that are equal or better uh, as compared to people who didn't have COVID and they got the second shot. Um, and so we had this finding a few weeks ago. And in the meantime, there's now uh, a total of four papers, all in the preprint stage, but pretty good groups and solid data that. Um, and all of them show the same. Um, and it seems from one of the papers that uh, people who had COVID and they get, then get the vaccine uh, have a very, very good neutralizing response also against these variants, including the, the South African variant. And the other point that, um, that came up is that uh, a lot of people, when they get their second uh, shot of RNA vaccine, uh, have stronger side effects than after they get the, the first shot, right? Uh, usually the system, uh, the, the local side effects, the injection side pain is the same, but the second time uh, systemic responses like chills, um, maybe elevated temperature, fatigue, um, um, muscle pain, etc. Uh, it's usually uh, occurring at a higher rate. Now we have 
initially heard uh, just anecdotally that people who had COVID and they got their first shot have strong side effects that were comparable to what other people got after their second dose. And so we, we looked at that too and we uh, quantified that and it's actually the case. So right now from a research perspective and I can say, say this from a regulatory or policy perspective, it makes sense to give one dose to somebody who already had COVID. The second dose might not be necessary at all. And so right now we are trying to actually stimulate a discussion to change the policy. Uh, that might or might not happen, but again, there was a lot of data that was produced in the last few weeks. And uh, independently of, of where that data was produced, um, the, the data, the results are the same. And so I think we have a pretty strong case, but until the policy changes, I would recommend to go with the two doses that, uh, that you know, the CDC is recommending. Yeah, very good and, and understood. And I, I uh, very much appreciate um, your time tonight. There's clearly lots and lots of things that are still to be learned uh, about uh, the virus itself, the vaccination efficacy, the different approaches to different variants and, and lots of other questions. Um, but the last hour, I hope uh, for our audience, uh, for me certainly was extremely informative uh, and I very, very much appreciate your time. I can't let you go uh, before uh, uh, asking you about your uh, tweet from a few days ago where you showed your skis and your commute to work through the uh, New York snow. I hope you're not sitting there ready to uh, put on your skis to go home. Are you, are you walking again or are you truly skiing to work these days? So usually if it's snowing in New York and there's an, enough snow in Central Park, I take the opportunity to, to use my cross-country skis to go to work. And I did that actually twice, but today I'm walking. Um, but uh, it's a lot of fun and I'm originally from Austria. I like snow, I like skiing and... <laughs> I don't get to, to ski too often. So you have to take these opportunities and, and actually do it. I, I was going to say after that tweet, I was starting to think about the uh, little hills I remember at Central Park and they don't compare uh, to Austria, that's for sure. Uh, listen, uh, Florian, I, I very, very much appreciate your time and uh, all the information. It's been tremendously helpful. Thank you a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dr. Mergener and Dr. Kramer for a great discussion tonight. And thanks to all of you who participated in this evening's webinar. As a participant tonight, ASG will circulate a short survey in the next 24 hours. Your feedback would be greatly appreciated and helps us growing our webinar topics and presentations. Finally, don't forget that you can access the recordings of this webinar and engage your peers by accessing the archives on GILEAP at learn.asge.org. This concludes our presentation. We hope tonight's information is useful to you and your practice.